0: You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Wow, we've got a doozy this week. I'm just going you can tell by the title, Flame and Sword. This is a tough passage. I really see this passage as as a very important word for us and for for the church in general. Jesus has something to say to us in this passage. But as you'll see, uh, it's a rather dense passage and it's got several metaphors. And if we just read it all at once... You know, I don't think it would be good to just assume everybody understands it after reading it. I think a better tack to take is like what we did last weekend, where we just kind of work our way through it at the beginning, maybe verse by verse, a couple verses at a time, and just kind of piece it together. I'll give some thoughts and kind of help us kind of grasp everything that's happening that he's saying, because it is very dense Um, And then by the end of kind of walking through the passage, we should all have a good grasp on what Jesus is doing here, and then we'll pause and pray and get into the meat of what I want to say, what I feel led to say today. So uh, that's the passage, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. That's our passage for the week beginning tomorrow. Flame and Sword is the title. You'll see why. Uh, It'll be obvious. Let's begin reading verses 49 and 50 to get, get started. I'll make a few remarks and we'll continue. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. So this baptism that he's talking about, most scholars agree that it's his baptism of suffering. That word baptism, it's the Greek word baptizo, it just means to be immersed, so he says, I've got this immersion, and, and scholars say that this is an, um, he's going to be immersed in suffering. So in all probability, he's talking about his suffering on the cross that will soon take place for him. He's looking ahead to his sacrificial death on Calvary. And he says, I've got this um, fire that I want to bring, but I can't bring this fire until I go through that immersion of suffering. And we'll talk in just a moment about what this fire is. But it's obviously a metaphor. So let's continue. Verse 51. He says, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Now right here, he's telling us what's going to happen as this fire is released upon the earth. He's telling us the effect that this fire is going to have. And he says, when it's released, it's going to cause some division. Now, don't you find this a little bit odd that Jesus says this? Don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. I've come to bring the sword. It's odd because I can show you many other places in the scriptures where either it implies or it just outright says that, yes, Jesus did come to bring peace. When he's born, the angels say, peace on earth. And goodwill to all men. Out of his own mouth, Jesus will say, blessed are the peacemakers. Often when Jesus saves someone, delivers them, he he tells them, peace be with you. In Luke 10, when he sends his disciples on a ministry trip and he gives them instructions, he says, any of those homes that take you in and receive you, pray peace upon their homes. And then in Acts 10, when Simon Peter um, is, is recounting, giving a summary of his ministry, he says that Jesus went about proclaiming the good news and peace to all people. So I can tell you unequivocally and absolutely, yes, Jesus came to bring peace. And yet here, he explicitly says, no, I've come to bring division. Now, this is what we call a paradox. It can look like a contradiction. Now, I don't think it's the case that the New Testament writers were just too dull to notice The paradox, the contradiction here. I think it's here on purpose, and we're meant to wrestle with this. We're meant to hold something here in tension. But it means that tonight, you and I have some serious thinking to do. I'm going to tell you right from the get-go, this is a thinking cap message. You're going to have to really think with me tonight. So how do we put these two things together? I have come to bring peace. Don't think I've come to bring peace. We'll deal with that a little bit later on. Let's move on. Verses 52 and 53. From now on, in other words, after this fire comes, there will be five and one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In In other words, it's just going to cause all kinds of mayhem. It's going to split families right down the middle. Now, it's important you understand here that Jesus is merely describing what's going to happen. He's not prescribing this. He's not saying, boy, I can't wait to split families apart. I can't wait to just divide all of these families. That's not what he wants to see happen. But what he's saying is this fire is going to have this effect. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have the effect of, of causing division. And ultimately, it's going to be caused because some people are going to make a decision to surrender to Jesus as Lord and come under his reign and align themselves with his vision. But other people, even within the same family, are going to reject it and resist. Therefore, it's going to have the effect of causing division. Jesus is saying, I don't want it to happen, but this is... It's, it's an inevitable byproduct. Just two days ago, I was up at Gleanings for the Hungry up in Danuba, California, one of the ministries that we partner with here. And I, uh, one of the many people that I met, some of you may know him if you've been up to Gleanings. He's on staff. It's a guy named Muhammad John. And Muhammad John is from Uzbekistan. I was talking to him. I got to meet him. And I, I was just fascinated. I wanted to ask him. He, he's from Uzbekistan, and his family was Muslim. His parents were Muslim. And his, I, think, I know his dad has passed. His dad died a Muslim. I think his mother's still a Muslim. But he grew up in that environment. And he said when he was 16, he converted to Christianity and submitted his life to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something. As soon as he made that decision, it cost him dearly. Because all of a sudden, his family now doesn't want anything to do with him. And they do everything they can to get him to, to reject Christianity. And, and when he refused, it caused major, it split his family apart. It caused major division until many years later when it began to be healed. Because his parents were seeing the transformation that was taking place in his life. In my book, Jesus People, I, I write about um, an example, uh, a guy, a real life example, named Muhammad Said Omer who grew up in Sudan, Muslim, totalitarian nation. And for college, he moved to India and was studying at the University of New Delhi. And it was there where he became a Christian. And when his parents found out about it, they demanded that he return to the Sudan. And when he returned, they did everything they could, even to the point of threatening to disown him, to get him to renounce Christ. And when he refused they turned him over to the Sudanese intelligence services. He was arrested and tortured. They extracted his fingernails with pliers. And then eventually, after they handed him back to his parents, he was under surveillance from that point on, and about three years into it, some, the underground Christian church was able to work together to help him to escape, and now he's living in a totally different country and under a different identity, completely separated from his family. This is real life happening right now. In different parts of the world. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, I don't want this type of thing to happen. But this fire that's unleashed in the world, it's going to bring healing. It's going to bring peace. It's going to bring restoration to human hearts and to relationships to society itself. It's going to bring salvation and rescue to the world. But there are going to be people who are going to set themselves against it. They don't want it. They're going to resist it for whatever reason. And therefore, it's going to cause the vision. It's not what I want to happen, but it's going to happen. Some of you perhaps have experienced this in your family because of your commitment to Jesus. Maybe there's someone in your family who just treats you differently. Maybe you're ostracized within your own flesh and blood relationships. And so this type of thing goes on and it's been going on since the early church. And that's what Jesus is warning. This fire is also going to have this effect. Continuing verse 54 through 56. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? In Palestine, in that part of the world, whenever a cloud would be blowing in from the west, from the direction of the Mediterranean Sea, they would know it's bringing rain. Likewise, whenever a, a wind begins blowing from the south, they would know this is a desert wind and, and the temperature is going to begin to rise. We all know something about that with these Santa Ana winds. It feels like somebody's blowing a hairdryer in your face. And in that part of the world, When these desert winds would start kicking in, it could rise even to this. It could rise something like twenty to thirty degrees within a single hour, and so the the people living there in that climate they know how to how to interpret those weather signs. And Jesus is saying, "You're at least that smart, but you don't see what's happening right in front of you." I'm I'm delivering these people, I'm I'm healing people, I'm doing these miracles, I'm giving this teaching, and yet so many of you in the crowd are just here for the carnival factor. You're not seeing the deeper truth behind these acts, that what I'm doing is ushering in a whole new era of human history called the kingdom of God, and it's going to turn the world upside down. It's going to disrupt the present order of the way things are done. And it's not going to stop until it's taken over the whole planet. And now is the time to get things aligned with this kingdom and to disrupt your lives. Allow the kingdom to disrupt your lives and align yourselves in perfect harmony with my vision for the world because it's, it's going to get a lot more difficult later on. And that's what he alludes to here in these last three verses, verses 57 through 59. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, here he's using an analogy from the world of law. In those days, if you owed somebody a lot of money and you weren't paying, you weren't like staying current, that person could take you to the local judge, sort of like a small claims court, and issue a complaint. And if the judge ends up finding you guilty, they could throw you into a a kind of prison. It was like a debtor's prison where you would stay there. You would lose your freedom until every penny was paid back. And Jesus is saying, "If, if you're in that scenario, it would be in your best interest right now to work it out. Between you and the person, settle it now. Don't wait, because if you wait, they may take you to the judge. And if the judge finds you guilty, you're going to find yourself in prison. And so it's an analogy that he's using to explain basically his point of this whole passage. And that is the time to get it right is now. Now is the time to align your lives, your relationships, everything about you to align it with the kingdom that I'm ushering in. Because for some of you, it's going to get a whole lot more difficult as time moves on. Okay, so the image that I want to zero in on with you is the first image that Jesus brings up, this image of fire. It's a metaphor. He says, I have come to bring a fire on the earth. Now, a lot of times in a church setting, when we hear somebody talk about fire, we immediately think of hell. And if that's the case, then it colors the way we can interpret what Jesus is saying. And we start thinking that he's just really ticked off here. Like, boy, I just want to set fire to everything. I just want to kindle a fire on the earth. I want to burn up all you hypocrites who just aren't getting with it. i want to burn up families. I just want to burn it all up. Scorched earth. And it really sounds like Jesus is angry. Which is odd because elsewhere in the the Gospels, in the New Testament, it talks about how Jesus came to bring good news. But but that, that sure doesn't sound like good news. Elsewhere it talks about how Jesus came to save. That doesn't sound very saving. It says Jesus came to bring healing. That doesn't sound very healing. It says Jesus came to bring peace. But here Jesus explicitly says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. So what's up with all of this? How do we put all of this together? It's a paradox. It doesn't seem to fit. How do we deal with this? Now, right here, I'm going to put all my cards on the table, and I'm going to tell you in a few sentences. I'm going to give you the rest of the sermon in a few sentences just to kind of get your mind going. And then, after I give you that few-sentence summary, then we're going to take a little bit more time and flesh out those thoughts. But here's here's where we're going to go with this because here's where I think Jesus is coming from. He says, I've come to bring a fire on the earth. God himself is a fire. Uh, That's one of the metaphors that is used throughout scripture, actually, several times. We see God being spoken of as a fire. In Hebrews uh, 12, it says God is a consuming fire. And so this fire that Jesus wants to bring upon the earth is none other than the fire of God's very presence. It's the fire of God's passionate love that brings salvation, that brings healing, that makes things right, that makes things whole. It's the fire of God's love that brings peace. It's the fire of God's love that purifies all who will Welcome it. All all who allow God to consume them with his love receive purification and peace and salvation. But that same fire becomes a fire of destruction for all who refuse to be consumed by it. C.S. Lewis in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia, I think he captures this for for us in, in in a very good way. And at the very end, in the final battle, Aslan shows up. How many of y'all are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia? All right, all of you. Aslan shows up at the end. And Aslan, you know, he's this big majestic lion. He's the king of Narnia. And to all who love Aslan, you know, Lucy and the other children, they see and experience Aslan as this loving, gentle, kind, wonderful creature And they're drawn to him. They run to Aslan and they find safety and security and they experience the goodness of Aslan. But for those who set themselves against Aslan and define themselves as Aslan's enemies and refuse to align themselves with Aslan, they see Aslan as this terrifying beast. Now it's the same Aslan. And his character truly is love and kindness and gentleness That's who Aslan truly is. But for those who set themselves against Aslan, they see him as this terrifying beast. And in the same way, God is perfect, fiery love. But he is seen and experienced as terrifying destruction to all who, to a bitter end, refuse to submit to that love. Now, I've got your wheels turning, hopefully, now I want us to flesh out these thoughts. I think I can help you if you're stumbling over this. Let me, let's flesh this out, and to help you do so, I'm going to talk about three aspects of the fire that God is. Three aspects of the fire that God is, and you might even write these down. Number one, God is a loving fire. Everybody say, God is a loving fire. I just want to make sure you're still with me. In 1 John chapter 4, Twice, verse 8, verse 16, it says, God is love. Now, I want to teach you this. It's a simple thought, but it's probably one of the most important things that you'll ever hear a preacher say. And it is deeply profound, as simple as it is. Love is who God is. Love is not something God does. Love is not an attribute that God has as if love is one single attribute that is shoulder to shoulder with all of these other attributes on equal footing. Love is not something God does. Love is not something God has. Love is who God is. It's his eternal essence. Therefore, everything that God does, even his wrath, flows out of love. Because God cannot do something contrary to God's nature. God is love. And that love is a fire. It's hot. I want to show you this passage in Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 8. And we're going to leave this passage up here for several minutes because I'm going to refer back to it a few times. And I want to talk about what this passage reveals to us about the nature of love. Look at what it says. First of all, let's, let's just look at what the author says. Love is invincible facing danger and death. Passion laughs at the terrors of hell. The fire of love stops at nothing. It sweeps everything before it. Floodwaters cannot drown love. Torrents of rain can't put it out. Now originally, this passage was meant to, be des- to describe the kind of love shared between a bride and a groom. But as Christians the church historically we've always looked at this passage through a different lens we allegorize it to describe the kind of kind of love that Christ has for his church. And it says some very profound things about the nature of love that it's it's like a fire it's hot it's untamable it consumes. So I want to show you the four things. I, I think we can narrow it down to four things that this passage teaches us about the nature of love. The first thing, number one, and we'll just go right down the line, is that the fire of love burns hot in the face of danger and death. When you deeply love someone, you're willing to put your life on the line. You're willing to even face certain death for that person, when you're consumed with love for them, because that's what love does. It's crazy, it's untamable, it's hot. The second thing that it says is that the fiery passion of love laughs at the terrors of hell. I would be willing to go through the terrors of hell to rescue my wife. I would be willing to go through the terrors of hell to rescue my children, are you kidding me? To rescue my friends, my loved ones because that's what love does. Love puts the other ahead of yourself, even when it costs you exquisite pain and discomfort and terror. You could say it like this, love literally burns hotter than hell. The third thing that it says about love is that love sweeps away everything before it. It stops at nothing. It's the image of a brush fire, which you all know something about that in Southern California. A brush fire just keeps going and it burns up everything in its way. There is no obstacle it doesn't overcome. It just sweeps up everything in front of it. And when you're consumed with love for someone, there's nothing you won't do to get to them. You'll change country. You'll change your culture. You'll learn a different language if you have to. I have friends who have done just that. Love stops at nothing. It's, it's a brush fire. It always finds a way. It won't let anything get in the way between it and the beloved. It sweeps everything away before it. And then the fourth thing that it tells, tells us about love is that nothing can put the fire of love out. It says floodwaters cannot drown love. Torrents of rain can't put it out. It's inextinguishable. Love can say to the other person, you may give me every reason in the world not to love you, and it's not going to affect my love for you. I'm just going to keep burning and burning and burning and burning. And what we need to see so clearly and what we need to feel in the core of our being today and understand is that God is this kind of love, and God is that kind of fire. In fact, we can say it like this. God is a fire that burns with Infinite intensity. Right now, I want you to think about the greatest example of love you have ever witnessed in your life between mortal human beings. Between a parent and a child, between a husband and wife, between friends, whatever. Think about the greatest, most noble, most tender, most forgiving, self-sacrificial example of love that you've ever seen with your eyes in this life. No matter how great it is, it may give you goosebumps to think about it. It may bring tears to your eyes. But what you've got to understand, is, it is a pale reflection of the kind of love that God is and the kind of fire that God is. God is a fire that burns with infinite intensity. And nowhere do we see this fire burning brighter than when we look upon Jesus dying on the cross, giving his life. Calvary is God on fire with a kind of love you and I can scarcely begin to imagine. So now I want to look at this passage again. I want to look at these same four things. But this time when we read it, when we look at it, I want you to think about the cross and what this passage reveals to us about the love that God is and the love that pours into our lives from the cross. If you remember those four things, remember the first thing. It says the fire of God's love burns hot in the face of danger and death. I I don't even have to explain that one. That's exactly what's happening on the cross. Jesus is absorbing danger and death in order to be reconciled to you and I. The second thing is is the passionate fire of love laughs at the terrors of hell. When Jesus came to this earth and when Jesus went to the cross, he took the terrors of hell upon himself. He offered himself to to Satan and the powers that orchestrated his crucifixion. He brought upon himself the judgment and condemnation of our sin. And 1 Peter says he descended to hell, however you understand that. God's love laughs at the terrors of hell. In Hebrews, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy that was set before him was being with you and me. And for God, that made the terrors of hell insignificant. The third thing is that the untamable fire of God's love burns up every obstacle that we could ever put in front of it. It burns up the obstacle of our bondage to Satan. It burns up the obstacle of our sin. It burns up the obstacle of our rebellion. Love finds a way to be reconciled. It's a brush fire. It burns up every obstacle. And God relentlessly, no matter who you are, no matter how much you've blown it, no matter how far gone you are, God relentlessly pursues you with his fiery love. And he never relents. He never gives up. He never quits. And then the fourth thing, remember, is there's nothing that can extinguish that love. The floodwaters of your rebellion cannot extinguish God's love for you. The floodwaters of your unbelief cannot extinguish God's love for you. The floodwaters of your sin, no matter how heinous your sin is, cannot extinguish God's love for you. It just keeps burning and burning and burning because it's who he is. It's not what he does. It's who God is. He can't help it. So if you're listening to this right now and you think for one second that your sin is too great, that your sin extinguishes God's love somehow, I'm just inviting you to consider tonight. Just think again. I don't care what sin is in your life presently or in your past, however heinous it is. You may have had an affair. You may have committed adultery. You may have had an abortion. You may have committed murder your whole life. You've been addicted. Whatever your sin is, know that your sin is like a little water droplet trying to put out the sun. God's love vaporizes your sin in a second. And the cross does two things. The cross reveals the infinite intensity of God's love for us. But what it also does is it unleashes the infinite intensity of that fiery love into this world. So that when you and I say yes and we invite the consuming fire of God's love to take up residence in us, not just in one moment, but every day. God, come. I welcome you. I invite you into my life. Transform me in your image. When you, when your life says yes to God, now that fiery presence of God's love, God's very self, comes and dwells on the inside of you, and you begin to burn and be consumed with love for the sake of other people. And, and it, it just... Every time you come to God in repentance and pray and worship and you meet with him on a daily basis, you're adding fuel to that fire. It grows so that progressively your love for others grows and you begin to notice people you didn't notice before. You begin to regard people who the world says is unimportant. You begin to see them differently. You see them as just as important as the president of the United States. You begin to have mercy on people that you never You never thought of before. You begin to find joy in sacrificing of your time and resources for the sake of someone else. I'm not going to embarrass this person, but there's somebody in this room tonight who who heard about a need this week of somebody in our church who was in a wreck and they were in the middle of moving and and they said, I'm going to drop what I'm doing. I'm going to bring my truck and I'm going to help them finish the job. See, when God's love's burning in you, eventually that becomes second nature. And your whole life becomes just a consuming fire of love for the sake of others. And so the word here this evening is let yourself be consumed by the love of God. Throw yourself into that fire. Give yourself to that fire. And be consumed with the love of God burning in your heart, flowing outward towards a world that desperately needs to feel the warmth of that fire burning in you for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's point number one. It'll it'll pick up from here. Number one is God is a loving fire. Number two, God is a purifying fire. He's a purifying fire. But that's not a different fire. There's only one fire and that's God. It's the fire of God's love. And that love purifies over and over again in the scriptures. It says God is holy. He's holy. He's distinct. He's other. He's a holy God. Way back in Exodus, it says that anyone who looks upon the face of God will not live. God is so holy, you can't even look upon the face of God and live. You remember that story where Moses is just pleading with God, God, show me your glory, show me. I want to have a glimpse of you. I want to see you. And God's like, I, I can't. If I, if I showed you, you would die. It's not that God's saying, if I showed you, I would kill you. He's saying, this is just what would happen. I don't want it to happen. It's just how it works. You'd burn up. And that may explain why throughout the story of Scripture, anybody you can think of who has one of these profound theophanies, these profound encounters with God, once-in-a-lifetime encounters with God, they always come away from that experience totally undone. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he has this vision like he's never had before where he sees the very glory of God filling the temple, the train of his robe filling the temple. And Isaiah's immediate response is, woe is me. Same thing with others. Daniel falls on his face. John the revelator falls on his face. Simon Peter falls on his face. When you Whether it's in a worship service like this, whether it's in your own prayer time, wherever the context, when you begin to catch a glimpse of the majesty and the beauty of God's love and God's holiness, as He is, you can't help but become more aware of just how incompatible you are in your sin with that God. You ever have this experience where you're in like a dark room, you're laying down, the light's been off for two hours? And all of a sudden, somebody walks in and flips the light switch on, and you're like, ah! You know, it takes you a moment. Your eyes are just hurting, and they have to adjust. It's because your eyes get acclimated to the darkness. And in the same way, our lives, without realizing it, our lives become acclimated to our sin to the point where we don't even realize how far gone we are until we come into the light of the beauty of God's holiness and God's presence. And so the fire of God's holy love exposes our sin and exposes our guilt. But listen, that is not a different fire from the fire of God's holy love. It's the same fire. And so God doesn't just expose our sin and expose our guilt, but he burns it away because he's a God of love. He Just remember what I said about the brush fire. He burns up every obstacle between between you and I and him. He's not going to let anything stand in the way. And so he burns all, he purifies, his love purifies us. Look at this passage in Hebrews 12, verse 29. For God is not, uh, this is the message Bible, which I really love. For God is not an indifferent bystander. He's actively cleaning house, torching all that needs to burn, and he won't quit until it's all cleansed. God himself is fire. Fire. So this fire that Jesus wants to unleash it has a purging quality to it. God is a consuming fire that burns up everything that is not consistent with his love. He wants to burn up our sin. He wants to burn up our self-centeredness. He wants to burn up our greed. He wants to burn up our lust. He wants to burn up our addictions. He wants to burn up our judgments towards others that keeps us from loving them well. He wants to burn up every trace of racism, sexism, classism. He wants to burn up all materialism. Anything that will be an obstacle between us and him, he wants to sweep it away. And he does it out of his love. And he does it by using all of the circumstances in our lives to teach us to refine us, to correct us, to discipline us. Now, that doesn't mean that he causes all of the circumstances in our lives. I think some of our circumstances deeply grieve him. But nevertheless, when those circumstances occur, for whatever reason, whatever the source, God is so infinitely wise and creative that after the fact, he can take anything and everything we've gone through and use it to teach us and refine us, and purify us because of his love for us. And so the word here is let him burn up everything he needs to burn up. Withholding it from God only makes it more painful. But the more we let God's love burn that stuff away and refine us, the more we see him as he is. And the more we see him as he is, the more we want to yield to him. And the more we yield to him, the better we see And the better we see, the more and more we want. See, now you're in this flow. Now you're in this current. But when we resist, when we reject, it just causes more pain later on. And that leads to the third and final aspect of this fire, number three. God is a destroying fire. Look at this passage in Malachi 4, verses 1 and 2. Surely the day is coming... It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. Now there's all kinds of metaphors happening here. We're not to take them literally, but they, they communicate real truths. He talks about how on this day of judgment, and, and I believe throughout our lives we have days of judgment. You know, there's all kinds of ways throughout our lifetime where we experience the consequences, the natural organic consequences of our sins. So we all have lowercase days of judgment, but I also believe there's a capital D day of judgment, a final judgment. And he's saying, when this day of judgment comes, we come into the presence of the son of righteousness, the fire of all fires, the one who is himself fire. And that son of righteousness heals all who will yield and welcome and submit to it. But if you refuse, if you resist... Till the bitter end, you're destroyed by that same fire. It's the same fire, it's not a different fire. But the same fire that brings good news and healing and life to one brings bad news and destruction to the other. Think of it this way, this will help some of you. If you think about the sun in our solar system, the sun is always burning and it never stops burning, it never changes, the sun is the sun and it does what it does. But different materials respond in unique ways to the sun. So, for example, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. But it's not that the sun changes, the sun doesn't do anything different. The sun's just doing what the sun does. What determines the effect it will have on the substance is the composition and nature of the substance. Does that make sense? So God is a God of fiery love who's constantly burning and shining with love and healing and peace. And to all who, with open arms, welcome its rays, they receive that life. They receive that healing, that peace. Things are made right. Not only that, but now that person begins to radiate And it becomes useful in God's hands to bring peace and justice and mercy to others. But if you reject, if you say no, if you resist, you're resisting the very God who is love, who is peace, who is healing. And therefore, your decision puts yourself on a trajectory that organically leads to destruction. It's not that God has to inflict you with destruction, but it's the natural organic uh, destination of the trajectory you've you've set yourself on. If if you're resisting God, who is love, then there's only one other alternative. You understand? And this is part of the fire that Jesus says he's come to unleash upon the earth. John the Baptist puts it like this, Luke chapter three, verses 16 and 17. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, a lot of people think, when they see fire, they think, oh, that's, you know, I'm from a Pentecostal background. So they're like, oh, that's, we want the fire. We want the fire. And, uh, and yet, uh, the very next verse explains what this fire is. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's an image. But this image of unquenchable fire, it just means it's not going to be put out and it's going to do what it's meant to do, and that is burn up the chaff. So God is fiery, holy love that saves, that heals, that frees and liberates, that brings peace, that purifies. But if you reject, if you refuse, if you resist, you are consumed by that same fire in a totally different way. And so that's why I invite you once again Now is the time. Now is the time to yield. Even if you don't know all that means and all that it entails, let the posture of your heart be one of open invitation tonight. God, come and consume me with your love. I want to be transformed and look more and more like Jesus. And as you continue to live that yes, not just say it, but you live that yes, you live with open arms and open hands. <clears throat> Progressively in your life, you're gonna experience a profound peace that you cannot find anywhere else. A deep abiding joy that nobody can take away from you. You're gonna to begin to experience healing. Things are gonna to begin to be made whole in you. You're gonna be saved from a lifetime of destruction. A lifetime of destructive choices, Jesus is going to show you the path to life the way it's meant to be lived, the way you are meant to enjoy it, and then out of that experience, you're then going to begin to be used in the lives of others, an agent of healing, an agent of peace, an agent of freedom, and that's a lifelong journey called the Jesus way, and that's what I'm inviting you on. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.